When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that was as high octane as it was unique. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 19 would be the age she was when she had already locked down a publishing deal with EMI, a management deal in an audition with Island Records. Three more was roughly the hour in the morning that she was spotted running down Regent Street in London, her body bruised and bloodied with her husband, Blake Fielder Civil, hot on her trail. Another two would be the amount of her money in hundreds of thousands of pounds that some shady characters would demand in an extortion deal to prevent her husband from doing serious time for the assault of an innocent man. And three more would be the number of times London police would bang on the back door of her Camden Town flat before ramming it down with brute force, all totaling 27. On this, our second episode of season four, Pop culture powerhouses, a bruised and bloodied chase, shady extortion deals, and Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is the 27 Club.
was beating so hard she thought it would burst from her chest. And her head was spinning, her lungs were on fire. London was making a racket. Engines revving, car horns blaring, feet shuffling. She swore she could hear the earth turning on its axis. The grinding of soil and rock and fire seemed to resonate from the depths of the planet's core all the way up to King's Cross. Amy Winehouse wasn't drunk or high. In fact, she was stone cold sober. She did, however, fear that she was having a panic attack, if this was what a panic attack felt like. She'd never experienced one before. She was 19 years old and on her way to an audition for Island Records executives at their London office and she was suddenly afraid that she was about to make a deal with yet another devil. The audition itself was no sweat. Amy could sing in front of anyone. It didn't matter if it was a classroom full of little kids or a suit in a corporate office. She'd had that natural confidence for years. At home in Southgate as a student at the prestigious Sylvia Young Theater School and as the featured vocalist for the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Singing was the furthest thing from fear that Amy Winehouse knew. The real fear was that at just 19 years old, she was signing her life away before she really knew what she wanted her life to be. Was she prepared to make a decision that day inside Island Records offices? She'd heard that five different labels were engaged in a bidding war, and for her. But what if Island offered her a deal right then and there? She'd already signed that publishing deal with EMI, and that management deal with 19 management of all places. Devil One and Devil Two. Simon Fuller ran 19 management, and Simon Fuller, well, he didn't know shit about music. Sure, he'd broken artists like Pat Benatar, Billy Idol, and Huey Lewis in the news back in the 80s, but don't let that fool you. He was not a music guy. He was a business guy. He paid more attention to trends and markets and bottom lines than he did to scenes and singers. He gave the people what they thought they wanted, spoon-fed it to them. He told the public that they wanted prefab quote-unquote bands like the Spice Girls, and probably the most blatant example of fake plastic money-grubbing bullocks since the Village People. And then there was the Pop Idol competition TV show, the very one that spawned American Idol, in which, once again, reinforced music as some commodity whose worth was decided upon by a handful of equally fake plastic money-grubbing judges. Amy Winehouse did not want to be associated with the Spice Girls or Pop Idol. She was embarrassed, to be honest, and also terrified that her association with 19 Management would homogenize her unique sound. Because Amy Winehouse wasn't like any other. She wasn't cookie cutter. Couldn't teach this, you were born with this. You didn't get Amy Winehouse out of a competition. And how did she get this way? How did she sound like she sounded? Shades of Billie Holiday and shades of Sarah Vaughan or Stax and Motown. A voice calling out of the past from the mouth of a petite Jewish girl from North London. The old songs crackled from an old radio in her house and immediately found her ears. And then the songs would echo back into the room, this time not from the radio, but instead from Amy's voice. She was a receiver, a conduit. She couldn't describe it, it just happened. Amy Winehouse was a naturally occurring phenomenon. She was not manufactured. So when it came to management and publishing and record contracts, she'll tell you what she wants, what she really, really wants. Even back at the Sylvia Young Theater School, where Amy was a teenage student on a scholarship, 
She did what she wanted, and in addition to singing, that included showing up to school late, chewing gum in class, and defying the dress code by piercing her nose. The Sylvia Young Theater School couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle how real she was, or how unique she was. They couldn't deal with the fact that she wasn't another cookie-cutter singer destined for a prefab quote-unquote band or a TV competition where she'd be judged by other fake plastic so-called singers. So they kicked her out. And then they had the audacity later on to say that they hadn't kicked her out, but that Amy had left on her own. A company like 19 Management wasn't the Sylvia Young Theater School. Simon Fuller wouldn't just kick her out if she refused to do things his way. He'd either make her do things his way, or he would just wait it out until she came around. Fuller and 19 Management had been waiting it out for a year now, having signed Amy when she was 18 years old and developing her style and repertoire behind the scenes while waiting for the right moment to break her into the market. And the time was now, 2002. The room at Island Records' corporate offices was smaller than she was expecting. Maybe it was all the people stuffed inside that made it seem small. Record executives, A&R people, managers. As she began to sing the jazz standard, there is no greater love for the gathered crowd, she began to feel her heartbeat slow down. And the world stopped spinning. Her lungs filled with air, the fear went away. There was just the song, and the way the song felt when she sent it out into the world. The room filled up with that voice. The one that came from an old radio in a house in Southgate pulled everyone that heard it out of time and into another time. It was magic, it was voodoo, it was something that every record label employee knew they would never be able to control. The voice would do its own thing, what it really, really wanted, and no one could tell it otherwise. The song ended and the room erupted in applause. And by the end of the year, Amy Winehouse had yet to physically transform into the Amy Winehouse the world would come to know. In 2002, there was no beehive hairdo, few tattoos taking up real estate on her arms, no 21st century pinup girl chic. But she would have a record contract with Island, with the understanding that she would do things the only way she knew how. Time would tell if the label deal, the publishing deal, or the management deal would reveal itself as the true devil in her life, or if there was another. Amy Winehouse was running. Her leg was beginning to cramp up. She was out of breath. Her mascara was smashed on her face, and there was a cut near her eyebrow, blood along her hairline. Her jeans were torn at the knee, exposing bloody flesh. More blood on her pink ballet shoes. Her knuckles were swollen, bruises on the side of her neck. And the tears, however, they were gone. They'd dried on their own, or perhaps they'd dried with the help of the wind on her face. She kept running down Regent Street as fast as she could. She could hear her husband chasing her. His rhythmic breathing was in frantic tandem with hers. Amy felt a visceral connection to everything he did, even if the place that connection always led them was inevitable doom. But at the moment, Amy was running away from a different inevitable doom, one that he would bring about. She wasn't sure what Blake would do to her if he caught up to her, and she didn't want to know. 
Blake was screaming her name nonstop. Amy, Amy, Amy. Amy kept running. Blake kept screaming. Every time Blake screamed out loud, Amy thought of what he had looked like when she'd taken off on foot seconds ago back at the Sanderson Hotel. His face and neck dug raw, long, jagged claw marks, fresh blood splattered about his chin. The sight made her feel sick, satisfied, and guilty all at the same time. Amy, get back here. Amy's feet ached inside her bloody ballet shoes. She rounded a corner and spotted an oncoming car. It was dark, late, 3 a.m. or some ungodly hour. She waved frantically and caught the driver's attention. The car slowed, the window rolled down. Amy slumped against the door, her bruised, bloodied, and smeared face telling an instantly knowable story. I have to get in, Amy said, desperately tugging at the door handle. I have to get away, please help me. The first time Amy Winehouse laid eyes on Blake Fielder Civil, she was on the rebound. She and her boyfriend of nine months were over. She was drinking and shooting pool at the good mixer in Camden, and she had a bump the size of a golf ball on her head. The night before, she woke up in the hospital after she'd knocked back one too many Sambucas and took a nasty fall. Now, she was trying to move on from the previous evening's mishap, and with a little help from a little hair of the dog, just like she was trying to move on from her recent emotional split. And then, he walked in. Tall, tattooed, trouble. Blake Fielder Civil didn't have a particular talent to speak of, or a hobby, unless loitering around Camden waiting for the right opportunity to drop into his lap was a hobby. He's often given a little too much credit as a video production assistant, but in reality, his one and only IMDb credit at this moment in time is a gopher on a Lily Allen video. All Amy knew was that, in her eyes, he was F-I-N-E fine. Was it the tattoos and the hat, the twinkle in his eye that said that he gave his little fucks as she gave? She'd heard that love was blind, but damn, her eyes were wide open and he had something. And there was one thing that Blake had on this day in 2005 that he rarely had, money. He'd won big on some bets with his bookie that day and he was in the mood to celebrate, which was convenient for Amy because the bar was refusing to serve her that night. The local pubs in Camden had all seen her drunk by dinner many times before or tying one on early at lunchtime, but the line on this night had been drawn on account of the fact that her latest bender had literally landed her in a hospital bed. If the bar had its way, Amy Winehouse was taking the night off. So Amy made her way over to Blake. She figured he'd already knew who she was. Her debut album, Frank, had peaked on the UK charts at number 14 the year before, and Amy had also been nominated for a British female solo artist and British Urban Act at the 2004 Brit Awards. She was going from a pub staple to a national icon, and it was happening fast. She put two pounds in Blake's palm and asked him to go buy her a tequila. The bartender would take her money just as long as it didn't come from her. Blake told her to keep her money. The drinks were on him. Like Romeo and Juliet, or better yet, like Sid and Nancy, Blake and Amy were doomed from the start. As a couple, their highs were sky high and their lows were rock bottom. When they drank at places like the Holly Arms and shot pool to the soundtrack of girl groups and garage rock blasting from the pub's jukebox, they were content, happy. But then there were the moments when it would all fall apart. The bar would close, the night would end, the highs evaporated, and the lows kicked in. And when the lows kicked in, that's when the cutting started. 
Self-harm, self-mutilation. A slice or a nick on the arm or the leg brought about a desired amount of pain. A new pain that you could focus on so that you didn't have to think about the pain of being in love or the pain of being out of love or the pain of being famous or the pain of being strung out and needing a fix. The cutting was the fix and the abuse was skin deep. Friends of the couple said Amy and Blake routinely engaged in quote-unquote emotional S&M, one-upping each other with mind games and cruel manipulation. Their abuse of other things is notorious, mostly heroin and crack cocaine, both of which Blake allegedly introduced to Amy shortly after the two married in a secret ceremony in Miami in May of 2007. Just months later, in August, Amy was back in the hospital, an overdose caused by a reported mixture of heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, ketamine, and alcohol in her system. She took drugs as if she was built like Andre the Giant, not a petite 23-year-old. The combination nearly killed her. And then, just days later, at the Sanderson Hotel in London, another nearly lethal combination of drugs, drink, emotional S&M, and physical violence. The sounds coming from Amy and Blake's 5,000-pound-a-night suite were so loud that the hotel's reception phone began to ring off the hook. Guests reported hearing screams, shouts, obscenities, the violent sounds of furniture being thrown. The hotel concierge called the police. And then Amy and Blake went from fight to flight and took their drama on the run, down Regent Street, before the cops arrived on the scene. Now, Amy was sitting in a stranger's car, bruised and bloodied. She'd looked out the passenger side window and could see the Thames approaching in the distance. She asked the driver to drop her off at the Charing Cross tube station. The next day, a headline in The Guardian read, Winehouse bloodied after alleged marital row. A spokesman for Scotland Yard gave this statement. Following a third-party report to police regarding suspected injuries to a woman in her 20s, Police officers spoke with the woman and no criminal offenses have been alleged. That same day, in the Daily Mail, the plot thickened in a series of new photos. Amy and Blake reunited shortly after Amy had been dropped off at Charing Cross, walking through Soho around 4 a.m. that same morning. In the photos, Blake, with extensive wounds on his face and neck, has his arm wrapped tight around the waist of Amy whose face is black and blue from the combination of smudged mascara and bruises. Across the pond in Hollywood, celebrity blogger and professional shitstirer Perez Hilton, who had claimed earlier that summer that his website clocked nearly 9 million hits in one day, published a new post about Amy Winehouse's narrative arc in the tabloids. Quote, fuck this fake Hollywood bullshit, he wrote. Quote, Amy Winehouse is going to die if she continues down this destructive path. Click here for graphic pictures of a bloody fight that erupted in the wee hours of Thursday morning. Ditch that loser husband, unquote. Perez Hilton was both chastising the drama while simultaneously selling it. He had an ego to feed, after all, not to mention page hits to accumulate on his blog. Everyone saw what he had written, including Amy. She sent the blogger a series of text messages demanding that he issue a retraction. Quote, Blake is the best man in the world, unquote. She attempted to explain what had happened that night. That Blake had walked in on her, about to do drugs with a call girl in their hotel room. Blake's angry response was to roll out that emotional S&M. Amy was worthless. Amy wasn't good enough for him. 
Amy bought the bullshit and then quickly sought out new pain to ease the pain she felt from disappointing her husband. She punished herself, one cut and then another. Blake tried to stop her from continuing to harm herself and that's when things got out of control. I lost it, Amy's whole Perez Hilton, and he saved my life. To Amy, Blake was her ride and die, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, as if she was one of the beehive girl group songbirds of a bygone era, love-struck over her boyfriend who just got back and boy, you're gonna be sorry. Better, the devil you know. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. James King was locking up the Macbeth pub in East London when Michael Brown came back. This fucking guy again, King thought to himself. Why was it that the ones who attracted the most trouble were the ones who were the hardest to get rid of? In King's eyes, it had all been very cut and very dry. Michael Brown was at the pub earlier that evening with his friend, Blake Fielder Civil. James King knew that Blake had been seen around town with Amy Winehouse, who was no stranger to the Macbeth. King liked Amy. It was hard not to. She was a foul-mouthed sweetheart. King didn't know Blake from Adam. He did know Michael Brown, and more specifically, he knew that Michael Brown had a volatile relationship with his ex-girlfriend, and that's putting it lightly. And furthermore, it sounded like she was on her way to the Macbeth, and she was pissed about something. Probably the fact that Michael Brown was there, and she wanted to be there too. James King saw a major fucking problem coming down the pike. There was going to be some dust up in his pub, and then he was going to have to clean up the mess. No. Not tonight. So he had told Michael Brown and his friend Blake, the one with all the tattoos who looked like he weighed seven stones soaking wet, to finish their pints and to fuck off. James King came to regret that decision. He was locking the double doors of the Macbeth later that night, after the drunks had gone home, and who should show up but Michael Brown. Shit. This was not good. Brown said he just wanted to talk. Bullshit. Brown wanted revenge for getting tossed tossed for some shit that in his eyes hadn't even happened. Now who the fuck did James King think he was? Tom Cruise in Minority Report? Fucking precog? Brown put himself in between the pub's double doors, his left hand casually in the pocket of his jeans, his right hand out in the open, gesturing wildly. King was trying to explain his reasoning behind kicking Brown and Blake out of the pub earlier, but it wasn't helping. It was just making things worse. And then Michael Brown snapped. He cocked his arm back and swung his fist directly at James King's face. Direct hit. King went down hard. On the ground, his body was trapped between the doors. Brown held him down and kept hitting him. King felt bones near his cheek crack. He tasted blood in his mouth. King had no idea that Blake Fielder Civil was laying in wait in the alleyway just around the corner from the pub. As soon as King was on the ground, Blake appeared, cigarette dangling from his mouth. King tried to get up, but Blake acted quickly. He thrust his foot into King's body and head, kicking him back down. King howled in pain. Seconds later, Brown and Blake walked away briskly. James King's face felt like it had been snapped in two. He whimpered out loud, but couldn't form a word. His jaw and cheekbones were broken. James King hoped that the attack he'd suffered at the hands and feet of Michael Brown and Blake Fielder Civil around midnight on June 20th, 2006, would be the last he'd hear from those two assholes. 
and that both time and the long arm of the law would heal all wounds, just like his reconstructed jaw would heal after extensive surgery. But as the trial for the grievous bodily harm he'd endured neared in October 2007, James King received another visit, this time at his own house, far out of town in East Sussex. It wasn't Blake or Brown who showed up at his door this time, but two of their would-be associates. One of them described the stockpile of weapons he had back home, as well as just how cozy he was with local organized crime. The other told King that if he would be willing to withdraw a statement from the trial, if he did not testify, then he'd be handsomely rewarded in the neighborhood of 200,000 pounds. And in order to make sure that King would stand by such an agreement, they were also going to pay for him to take a trip to Thailand for the duration of the trial. And that way, no one would have to worry about anything. The first guy reminded King about his stockpile of weapons back home. 200,000 pounds, how the hell were they going to get that kind of money, King wanted to know. Easy, Blake could get the money. His wife had loads of it. By October 2007, Blake Fielder Civil was no longer one of the random guys seen at pubs with Amy Winehouse. He was still regularly at pubs, but he was now Mr. Amy Winehouse, which in 2007 was a very good thing to be. The week that Amy turned 24 years old, just one month before her sophomore album, Back to Black, officially became a million seller in the UK. That same year, she won a Brit Award for Best Female Solo Artist, an L Style Award for her fashion sense, an Ivor Novello Award for her songwriting, a Mojo Magazine Award for having the coolest single on the planet, a Q Magazine Award for having the coolest LP, an MTV Europe Music Award for a dope video, she even got a GAFA award, which meant she was cool as shit in Denmark. And despite the fact that her live performances around this time continued to be erratic at best, including an entire US tour that had to be canceled due to an increasing frequency of scenes like the one at the Sanderson Hotel, Amy nevertheless remained one of the most critically acclaimed and commercially successful singers of her generation. And she did it by being herself by not allowing Simon Fuller to remake her into a Spice Girl or by compromising her unique musical vision by aligning her interests with major corporate labels like Island Records. If anything was being compromised, it was her reputation, thanks to the offer laid out by the two would-be associates of her husband, who wanted to use her money in order to squash the courtroom squeal that would likely send him to prison. James King wondered if Amy even knew that she was being used as a bankrolling pawn and whatever game was being played. And it didn't matter because whether or not James King was going to accept the bribe, he had to say that he would. Who the hell knows what these guys were capable of or what they'd do to get what they wanted. But then the would-be associates realized what it was that they truly wanted, a bigger piece of the extortion pie. So they tried to sell the whole story along with CCTV footage of the June 2006 assault to the Daily Mirror. Fuck Blake Fielder Civil and fuck Michael Brown. The middlemen were gonna get real paid. So these two would-be associates agreed to wear hidden cameras and recorded themselves having meetings at local pubs talking about their plan. The one with the stockpile of weapons back home said about James King, I'm gonna put the heavies on him and make him sign off his statement. Before any heavies could make anyone do anything, however, the Daily Mirror found its conscience and turned all their evidence over to the authorities which meant that Amy Winehouse was once again front page news. 
Not for selling a million albums, or for winning another prestigious award, or for hobbling down Regent Street covered in bruises. No. Amy Winehouse was once again a magnet for tabloid ink because now there was a warrant out for the arrest of her husband and this story, like all the other stories as of late, was not going to end well. November 8th, 2007. London police approached the flat in Camden Town with caution. The sun had just set. Headlights from passing cars lit up the reflective strips on their fluorescent jackets. The paparazzi in the news hadn't been tipped off, so there was no one there to bother them. They carefully made their way to the back of the flat. They didn't want to draw too much attention and also were hoping that the element of surprise would be on their side. They knocked on the back door. Nothing. Total silence from inside. And they knocked again. Police, the cop up in front said loudly and sternly with his mouth practically touching the door. Still nothing. Another knock, and this one louder than the previous knocks, more of a full-fisted bang, really. Open this door immediately or we will open it for you, the cop said. His voice said, irritated, his posture read, impatient. He turned back to the others and signaled for assistance by nodding his head. Another cop stepped forward from the group, a helmet strapped to his head. He wielded an enforcer, AKA the Big Red Key, a handheld battering ram popular with the squad when a little extra force was required to gain entry. It looked like a small bomb and its red paint was peeling from where it had been slugged against the resistant doors over the years. The cop swung the big chunk of hardened steel in his hands. It put a hole in the door with a dull thud. Again, the hole got bigger. Again, another hole. Pieces of the door splintered off and fell to the ground. Another swing from the big red key and the door caved in. The cops entered quickly and the place was a mess as expected. Clothes strewn all over the floor. Papers and compact discs haphazardly tossed around. Glassware and drug paraphernalia on a table. But he wasn't home, and neither was she. She wasn't the one they were looking for, anyway. Besides, Amy Winehouse had her own problems. She was in the middle of appealing a drug bust from back in October when she was touring in Norway. Staff at the Hotel Norge called the cops after they smelled weed emanating from Amy's room. Fucking narcs. She was being charged a $715 fine, which wasn't the end of the world, but... It was one more shitty story in the papers and another addition to a growing list of offenses and misdeeds that told an increasingly sad story of a charmed life losing all of its charm and spiraling into a freefall. As far as the cops were concerned, however, her husband had fallen long ago, hit rock bottom, and was now in the process of dragging Amy down to a subterranean level. Maybe this arrest would help her finally see the light. And yeah, the cops were talking about this arrest like it was an inevitable thing because they were going to get their man. They'd turn over every bar stool and open every bathroom stall and every pub from one side of the Thames to the other to find him. He'd turn up. The police had already spread out across Greater London and nabbed Michael Brown, 
and the two other middlemen accomplices for, to use the British vernacular, perverting the course of justice. In other words, attempting to extort James King, the man beaten to a bloody pulp by Blake and Brown, who was also the key witness in the trial. They knew it was only a matter of time before they had Blake Fielder civil in handcuffs. What they didn't know was what the arrest would do to Amy. If there was a light for her to see, this wasn't going to help her seek it out. If anything, it would make things even worse than they had ever been before. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.